Welcome to Risk Roundup. The healthcare system today is in turmoil. It remains tragically fragmented, doctor-centric, siloed, disconnected from the general needs of patients, very ineffective, costly, and facing very frightful financial fitness. The massive healthcare-driven fiscal problems that nations are facing today and will face in the coming tomorrow will likely put nation's survival security and sustainability at risk. While across nations over the years, there have been many talks and trials to fix the broken healthcare system to make it more accessible, affordable, and effective. More the decision makers have tried, more it has got messier and complex. So what can be done? To discuss complex challenges facing healthcare industry and potential solutions, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Devin Stinblock, President, CEO, Chief Scientist, and Research Physician at Brain Regeneration Inc. based in the United States. Welcome, Dr. Stinblock. We are delighted to have you on Risk Roundup. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. So let's begin by discussing the state of the healthcare industry. The healthcare system today remains highly fragmented, as I just you know mentioned. It is doctor-centric. Over, you know, we would have preferred to be people-centric or patient-centric, siloed, expensive, redundant, disconnected from the general need of patients, and in very dire financial situation. There is a growing concern that the healthcare system is in a state of turmoil and it is failing. How did this industry end up in such a chaos? What has led to the turmoil and failure of healthcare? Well, that's a, an entirely... Uh tremendous uh, question and and it's going to take a lot of time to answer uh, so i would prefer just to talk about in general uh, what we are faced with today uh, as to what we have problems with and what we can do about it that's fairly cheap and reasonable and and cost effective and effective and, and i think that's the important thing not you know sometimes it's like how did we get here to be human beings well that's a story <laughs> You see, how I, what I'm saying is like the story becomes so so long and convoluted that we would never get around to anything else other than talking about the history of mankind and then now the history of, of healthcare. And so what we're doing is right now, uh, every day, each one of us in this country and around the world are faced with problems that we as individuals are really uh, ill-prepared to understand and to do much about. And because of that, we search for other doctors and other people who know more about uh, our problems. So we run from one doctor to another saying, I've got this problem, I got that problem, and hoping that somebody out there has got some brains and some knowledge and can actually help solve these problems. Unfortunately, in many cases, that just doesn't happen. And so we have, I have had patients that have seen 20 doctors before they get to me. And, and so this is not uncommon. I would say my average patient has seen seven other doctors. And so, and all seven were wrong. And, uh, and sometimes and oftentimes, uh, the answer is right in front of everybody uh, in terms of the records. And all it took was somebody who had some caring and some thought and would review the records with the patient, examine the patient once more and say, aha, they forgot to look at this and they discarded this fact and this fact and these are the causes of your problems, and now we know what we can do about it, and this, this problem then can be solved. But that's just, that's just a, a, a lack of care, a lack of attention, a lack of proper education by the doctors and by the patients, so that each one of us who have tests done, uh, wherever they are and for whatever purpose, should take it upon themselves to get a copy of these test results and study them carefully, look up every word on that report, to understand what it has, is saying, and so that you are completely clear about what the findings are. I think that's really important, and that's something that's simple that each one of us can do and take charge of our own uh, healthcare by reading the records and asking and demanding for copies of all your lab tests, your, all your imaging studies and all that. And so when, for example, if you have a, it says sinus infection or evidence of uh, mastoiditis or sinusitis or whatever, that's an infection, and it should be treated. I would say about 50% of all my patients that come in with CAT scans of their head have chronic sinus infections that have been neglected and, and disregarded by their attending doctors and said it doesn't matter. And they're here they are two years, three years, four years, five years later, still suffering from chronic problems like migraine headaches and fatigue and, and all these different cytokine uh, 
uh, syndromes with aches and pains and, and all that. And yet it's right there. And all it was that if that patient himself or herself had just read and said, oh, what this? What? And then questioned the doctor, that would have solved the problem. But nobody has that kind of gumption, apparently, to do that. And so that's one very simple uh, answer to uh, this situation, which is bit, just pay attention to what's going on with your own medical records. So that's number one. That is very, that is a very good analysis that you you know I I mean we all have gone through that situation where we have to go to multiple multiple doctors even before we get some sort of you know answer and we we hope that you know there is an integrated approach that if we cannot change the way we educate or train the doctors to have an integrated you know understanding about the whole human body then at least let's have a team of doctors together so that we can quickly we can quickly come to the you know well, well, that's not going to happen that is just not going to happen we're not going to get a bunch of doctors together to help you or me okay that's just not going to happen financially it's impossible we have to think about something else now what does the doctor have that you and i are looking for you as a patient i as a patient what are we looking for we're looking for answers we're looking for a solution to our problems okay now when you go to the doctor you say okay whatever let's say i've got uh, i've got chronic fatigue okay and you say i've got fatigue i've been tired now for about three or four months i don't know why and he says okay so he puts you through some blood tests and he comes up and, oh, maybe it's your iron deficiency he checks you over nothing i can't find anything wrong i don't know what's what to do okay what are you going to do at that point uh, he said he's done his simple cursory testing and he can't find anything wrong. Now what do you do? So you, what do you do? Go to a fatigue specialist what, you know, or call up a whole team of people? No. What you should do is you would go to the Internet and put in your symptoms. Now, if you had a computerized system where you could put all your symptoms in, like, here I got fatigue. What else do I have? Well, I got a runny nose. Okay. I've got uh, my left toe hurts. Um, I got some intermittent diarrhea or constipation. I got this little rash on my elbow. You put all that stuff in, and I have a family history of my mother had rheumatoid arthritis, my father had asthma, uh, my two sisters have, have asthma and allergies, and I have hay fever. Now you put all that stuff in, and uh, and uh, maybe uh, you put that through, and the computer would then come back with a list of here fatigue. Number one, most probable cause. Number two, number three, number four, number five. And then what are the testing you should do? Okay, number one. Did you check for an iron? So if the iron test has not been done on that blood test, that would have been put into the computer, and the computer would say, number one, you need to have an iron test, and, it's, and it would be a, not only just a serum iron, but a, a total iron binding capacity, a percent saturation, and a ferritin. And the reason why that those are important to do that is that most doctors don't even do the right iron tests on you as a patient. And so even though you go to the doctor and say, I think I've got iron deficiency, he'll order, oftentimes he or she will order a serum iron, and if it's normal, it's just, you know, you don't have it, okay, which is total BS, okay, that's just ignorance on the part of them and lack of education, but if you had a computer saying, these are the tests that you should do, you go to the doctor and say, here are the tests, now he is legally obligated to look at that and to do what the computer is telling him, because there's no reason not to, uh, you know, so the computer is telling him, this is the best way to measure iron in a patient like this, you should do it this way, now he does it. But if he doesn't have that information, he's going to say, and you come in and yourself say, I think I should have a serum iron at GIBC, percent saturation at ferritin. He would look at you and say, oh, are you a doctor or something? Get out of here. Right? They get all upset. Okay? So you can't be pissing him off and get their egos bent out of shape. But you can do it by a different way, by approaching them with this computerized output that has put all of your symptoms, all of your, all of your findings into one thing and come up with a different variety of different ways of diagnosing and treating you. And so if we have, now now the average patient may not be able to do this, okay? Uh, because it may take too much time or effort or, or they're, they're just, uh, they want somebody else to hold their hand and all that. Well, in, in the way I propose is that, that uh, the government, our government, we spend a lot of money on healthcare. We have, right now we've got a proposal on, on the table for what, $45 billion for just drug addiction. And, and our overall costs are up in the, 800 to 900 billion dollars or so every year well that's a fair number of dollars and if we can eliminate 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 billion dollars that'd be great my proposal for about a billion dollars could eliminate 30 to 40 or at least or 30 to 40 percent so we're talking could very well be 300 or 400 billion dollars we could be saving plus saving innumerable lives and and untold suffering now how do we go about it well if if for a billion dollars i calculated it out 
with the number of private doctors we have in the country, uh, generalists and, and internal medicine doctors. I just counted them, added them all up, and I put one, one person paid for by the government into their office. And say we gave them $20 an hour for sitting there in that doctor's office, and the government pays for it, just to say. Okay, now everybody says, oh, that's too much money and all that. Well, not compared to a doctor who's seeing 30, 40 patients a day, and every patient he's seeing, he's making $2,000, $3,000 worth of mistakes. So in one day, he could easily spend forty dollars or $50,000 taking care of a bunch of patients in ways that are needless and, and just worthless. And yet, with this person there, he would the person in that lab or in that office would be sitting and interviewing you and making sure you fill out the papers correctly. And he would input it into the computer, then get the computer feedback, give it to the patient so the patient could have all this stuff. Maybe this, a lot of times you go to the doctors and he would say, well, take two aspirin, go, to, go home and, and take a nap, right? So here's the computer doing the same thing. Well, good. I'll go home and take an aspirin. Okay, so the computer has already eliminated the superficial, easy therapies by by the, the medical assistant giving that to the patient and saying, well, here's some home remedies you can do for your problem. You've got a splinter in your finger. You can do it this way and this way. Take it out that way. And, and it tells you exactly kind of these simple home remedy kinds of things, which would eliminate a lot of people just coming to the doctor harassing the doctors and the nurses. Okay, so now let's say that it's more complicated and, and you have this problem with the chronic fatigue. Okay, well now the patient has all the, the information about chronic fatigue, all the, all the different diagnoses that there can be. He's got, he's got maybe 10 pages of stuff he wants to read. So he sits there for a half an hour, an hour he reads it. Now he really is on top of it. He knows all about fatigue when he walks into that doctor's office. And when he says, hello doctor, hi Dr. Steenblog, I, and he says, okay, I got chronic fatigue and here's a list of all the different diagnoses that are possible and all my symptoms and, and the most likely choices that I have this and this and this and these are the tests that I should be doing. Do you think that makes my life easy? Yes, as a doctor, it makes my life very easy. Okay, John, ch-ch-ch-ch-dung. And now let me just check over things. Now I've got my information and my background and all that. I'm, I'm having that working with a computer and all this stuff and I'm working with the patient. The patient's aware, the doctor's aware, and we're now all on the same page and we are presenting to the patient all the very latest and greatest types of therapies and medicines there are. That is what we need. But unfortunately, nobody wants to hear that. For some reason, my message here has not gotten any traction whatsoever. And all I get is criticized for even coming up with this idea of actually helping people Save lives. We're saving lives and tons of money. I just do not understand why it's so hard to understand that this is eminently doable. We've got lots of computerized software programs and companies that we could easily gather together in one place and say, let's work together and you know and and help fund everybody because none of these companies are doing well. I mean, they're they're struggling like everybody else. And if we put them all together, working together, we would be able to help the world. The world would be just eternally grateful because we would just change the whole concept of the world. Because this whole thing could be spread throughout the world. India could have it, every, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, wherever you're in the Gobi Desert, you could be looking at your iPad and figuring out what to do in a, in a case of an emergency or something or a toxicology problem, whatever. You know, this is what we need. Right now, this is not available. For example, I'm right now suffering from a deep vein thrombosis. Okay, that's a clot in my leg. And I'm trying to stay in bed. My leg right now is, is up in the air, and I kept heating, put a heating pad on it. And I'm a doctor, and I know it. I even studied this. And, uh, you know, I've got a master's degree in this blood clotting business, so I know a little bit about it, right? And so here I'm trying, going through all the things I can do to dissolve this blood clot, and I've got all kinds of things. One is garlic, which is great, but you know, so but you have to know how to eat garlic. And it turns out that if you take garlic, uh, a lot of us get irritated guts because it's a little. Uh, irritating to the intestinal tract and all that. But if you mix it with with, um, with olive oil and let it set, it uh, will take up, uh, and you can take a combination of the particles of garlic, little pieces of garlic, and your olive oil, swallow it, and you have no problem with your gut, and it dissolves blood clots, okay? And so so this is just a home remedy that you know I came up with, but uh, now today I'm trying to say, well, okay, what else can I do? Okay, now there's two or three other different things that you can do. Now, most doctors, most people don't know this, but there's like three different enzymes that you can do use to dissolve blood clot, urokinase, streptokinase, and tissue plasminogen activator, okay? And you can do surgery and take the clot out. So, okay, now I'm trying to find out what are the criteria that are needed for the insurance to pay for these drugs and for and or for the surgery. So I call up last night at 5.10 after, so it's 10 minutes after five, so the, the office is closed. I talked to 
the operator uh, who is in charge of the vascular surgery group in my area. And I said, I'm a doctor. I got this problem. I need to talk to one of your doctors on call. And she says, no, I'm not going to let you. You cannot talk to any doctor on our, in, in our group. I said, excuse me, I got a medical problem. I'm a doctor and I need help. And you're telling me, no, yeah, that's right. You're not part of our group. <laughs> you see, so, so here, this is a good example here that, that even with all my knowledge, I still can't get information. Okay. Now, now I look it up on the net and I don't see that on in the net, but so there's always some facts somewhere that we don't have all the information to. And so there's always going to be some loopholes in this whole thing in terms of how I'm talking about, but, but still, uh, with most 99% of all the stuff that's out there, we have the knowledge, we have the information, but we don't have the delivery. And I'll give you another example. Another example of this situation, 1968, long time ago, right? 1968, I was in medical school and I was at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And my, my aunt, who uh, I loved, uh, had a car accident and had a brain injury. And they took her and, I, and they suggested, they called me, my, the husband, my uncle, called me and asked me what to do. And I said, take her to the Mayo Clinic. And they did. And I was at the Mayo Clinic and they came in and, and we talked and all that. And I thought at the time that that was the best place for her because it's, you know, that's the Mayo Clinic. My God, that's the number one clinic, medical clinic and group in the world as far as I was concerned and still do. And it's a great place. And, and so, uh, but they didn't do much. They just did observation and all that. Well, some years later, uh, I got into a technique called hyperbaric oxygen. And I discovered when I went back and reviewed the literature that in 1968, they had already published a paper on using hyperbaric oxygen for traumatic brain injury, just like my aunt had, okay? And yet they did not address that issue whatsoever. They did not bring it up. They did not talk about it. They did not discuss it. They did not consult with anybody that was an expert on it. And so that my auntie died because of lack of knowledge and lack of willingness to reach out and find that knowledge and apply it, you see. And this is common. I mean, every day we have that in cancer. We have, we have that all over the place. Anytime you have a cancer problem, cancer, pancreatic cancer. You know how many different therapies there are for can pancreatic cancer? Hundreds, if not thousands, you know? And so how do you decide which out of all that mess is right for you? When you come down with pancreatic cancer, you are dying and you're gonna be dead in anywhere from three months to, to a year usually. And, or maybe three, but in general, it goes pretty fast and you have very little time to sort through it all. And especially if, as a lay person, you really yeah. have a lot of time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. These are very complex challenges. The knowledge is there all across nations. Every nation has their own, you know, way of treating, you know, many diseases. And there is that uh, traditional medicine. There is that, you know, emerging medicine. There is, you know, nutritional. There are a lot of many different sure. new sure. avenues of uh, medical approach yeah. are emerging. But the challenge, like you said, is that it doesn't get integrated fast enough. There is a process, you know, it takes very long time before it becomes mainstream. And then, you know, doctors, they don't, you know, accept immediately, you know, if there yeah. are new innovative approaches. Right. Yes, that that is a challenge, and I uh, everyone you know sees that. And what before that, what you said about these computer programs—that means the AI-based you know systems that are developing—they are also proving going to prove very helpful. So if we all integrate all that knowledge, we are in a position to provide free basic healthcare to everyone across nations. It is Absolutely. you know fairly possible, but we it, 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 just you know the challenge is you know for nations to work together. To come, you know, to be able to work together, to agree to, uh, you know, unite and come integrate all their efforts to be able to do something as big as this to solve such a big problem because it's very expensive. This healthcare in most nations, healthcare has become so expensive. In U.S., if we see, we spend well, almost twenty percent of our GDP on healthcare, and most developed nations, their costs are also rising so rapidly. Now, there are reports that much of the healthcare expenditure is inefficient, redundant, and waste, total waste. So it seems that the industry needs serious help. And this healthcare, as we see today, is facing massive problems of too much unnecessary care. Overdose and unnecessary tests cost the healthcare system billions of dollars. I mean, we just uh, heard yesterday about the opioid, you know, uh, 
the case that you know the federal government has you know charged so many doctors and pharmacies and all that that is just an example of that so healthcare today and is facing tremendous fragmentation anyone who has in the united states who has visited emergency room or had been hospitalized they know that we don't receive just one bill to hospital service we get so many bills from so many different providers and secondary service providers and so on so this revenue cycle is also very inefficient so there are so many different complex problems that needs to be solved so uh, we are seeing that insurance is limited that uh, even employers are trying to you know buy insurance in different way with healthcare facing so many complex challenges it's going to be interesting to see how well, the healthcare system is going to respond well there's no question that there's lots and lots of problems but my my proposal is not to solve all those problems uh, my proposal is to solve the efficiency this is a very inefficient system you mentioned unnecessary tests there are also there are also tests like i said many tests that are done that are not actually read and so this is another you know you, it's, it doesn't help you as a patient if i order a cat scan of your sinuses for checking to see if you have a sinus infection and it comes back positive and i say oh that's that's just only a little bit of science, forget it, okay? And that's a judgment call. And you as a person have to be smart enough, which is hard, you know, that's something that I can't control, of course, uh, but you have to be intelligent and you have to be studying and you have to be concerned about your own healthcare and make sure that you understand that infections are bad and uh, hormonal imbalances are bad and, uh, you know, it goes on and on. You have anything that, is outside the norm for you as a human being it is not good for you you want to have everything working properly you don't want to have uh, iron deficiencies you don't want to have iron excess you don't want to have too much thyroid too little thyroid too many uh, adrenal corticosteroids too little etc etc so you have to be in balance okay now those things are things that each one of us should know and we should be taught so that's so that goes back to, to health in high school and, and health classes. We don't have, we have one, I had one health class, I believe, as I remember, in high school, in, in grade school and high school. One, one, that's all, okay? Now, I mean, give me a break. If we're talking about spending $800 billion, how many dollars is that per person every year? And each one of us should have, got, we should all go back, you know, what we could do is open up the high schools and grade schools to health classes, and everybody that's a, a human being in this country is required to go back through that school for a six-month course in health, okay? If you want to have a reduction in your health care premiums, you see what I'm saying? So the education of the public is absolutely essential, but we don't have that, and, and nobody's even talking about that, that we have a bunch of ignoramuses in this country and around the world. Everybody, including myself, we don't, none of us know enough about healthcare because it's such a monster. I mean, you're talking about, you know, when I started, when I started, which was 50 some years ago, uh, you know, I could study one subject in medicine and I could collect every piece of paper that has ever been written on that subject in three weeks, three weeks. Now I can spend three years collecting and I still won't have collected all the information on one subject. That's the difference between 50 years of medical innovation and creativity and knowledge tremendous amount of information we have now that's absolutely impossible for anybody to digest and to remember and to apply on an ongoing basis. So you need help. I need computers. I have computer databases for, I've got, I've got right now in my own private library, I've got over 1 million scientific papers, over 60,000 medical and scientific books in my private library. And I've, I've got access to basically millions and millions of papers on full to full out and I can correlate and look at it all. But I am very unusual, okay? I was the first, one of the first doctors in the country to ever have a computerized public med, you know, PubMed is that national uh, uh, database of medicine the federal government has for everybody that was made free by Al Gore in 1997. In 1986, that the PubMed, the uh, National Library of Medicine came out with a compact disc on ROM and which is a little device that you could put on your desk and put in all these compact discs. Well, I bought that, it cost me $3,600 in 1986 for one year subscription. I was one of the first doctors in the world to have that, okay? But do you think my patients appreciated it? No. Patients walk in there and they look at, I'm looking at the computer trying to figure out what to do with them. They don't care. 
They want me to glad hand them and tell them they're great and wonderful. That's all they care about. They don't care about, they, they, they expect that I'm going to know just because I'm a doctor, everything. Excuse me. None of us can know that. Just impossible. Another story, quick. I don't know, but here I am. I'm a freshman in medical, a freshman in college at Iowa State University. Okay, I wanted to be a doctor. I'd been wanting to be a doctor since I was four years of age, but I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I got an IQ of about 140, and I, I would like to have an IQ of about 180. So I'm a little bit underprivileged as far as na native intelligence, but I've got a motivation and a drive to do it. So here I am, my freshman year, I've taken two classes in chemistry. And this is the third quarter of chemistry. And I go, and for some reason, I have to go to the medical clinic there. And I go to it, go to this doctor, this lady doctor, and I say, Dr. So-and-so, uh, you know, I, it's my third quarter here of my freshman year of medical, of, of college, and I'm concerned that I may not be smart enough to be a doctor. And she says, well, why is that? I said, well, because I took chemistry two quarters now, that's six months of chemistry. Now this is my ninth month of chemistry. And you know, I can't remember much from the first quarter of chemistry. So I'm having a hard time thinking that in 10 years or 20 years, I'm gonna remember anything from any of this chemistry stuff. And I said to her, do you remember all of this material that you went through to become a doctor? And you know what she said? I do. I remember every bit of it. And I looked at her in my mind and I said, this woman is the most screwed up person I've ever met in my life. This is a total, absolute lie. She's looking me straight in the face and lying to me about that because it's absolutely impossible to remember all these details. I don't care how smart you are. Okay, and I said to myself, this woman is so messed up. If she can be a doctor, I can be a doctor. And I became the doctor because of her inspiration. <laughs> But, but you are, I understand, you know, what you're saying, but now there is a demand for change, right? I mean, this, just like you said, because of the internet and connected computers and all that wealth of information that is available, the patients, the, you know, informed individuals, they are demanding change. They want, they want uh, more and more. They are, you know, a lot of, I'm, you're right that, you know, not every individual or every patient that goes to a doctor's office, they are not informed, they are not accountable for their health. They have not, you know, taken the necessary steps or they are, they don't, they are not even informed about what to do to stay healthy. How to, you know, stay healthy and uh, not let the disease, you know, onset. So that information, that accountability, we don't see in most of the individuals. But now, because of the internet, that trend is slowly, slowly changing. People are so, trying to, yes, they are trying to take control of their, you know, health, and they are trying to understand what would keep them healthy, what kind of food to eat, what to not to eat, and you know how to uh, live their life, what kind of exercise they should do, so what kind of you know, uh, vitamins, minerals they need to take. So though that. Uh, that is slowly, slowly, you know, changing the landscape, but uh, it is still a long way to go. But it, it looks like that the consumers are driving, uh, well, change, no question demanding that. change. And sure, that's what we are seeing across nations that a lot of, uh, you know, things are beginning to change and the change is not coming from the industry. The, this uh, what we are seeing the AI based programs that is you know that they are being developed by innovators and technology companies they are not coming from within the healthcare industry so uh, how I, that it looks like you know the control of uh, how to make disease diagnosis accurate swift and cost effective that control is you know slowly slowly moving away from the healthcare industry and it is going towards the innovators and technology companies who are trying to redefine and redesign this healthcare system so what are your thoughts on how to make this uh, preventive care truly a disease prevention effort because we all know that this uh, what we are saying that prevention you know the steps that are being taken by doctors and hospitals that are yeah. actually not disease prevention steps. They are mainly disease diagnosis steps, in my assessment. Yeah. It truly healthcare requires, you know, a lot of different kind of uh, approach, and that we don't see. I mean, we do see that, you know, by some nutritional practitioners all across nations that they are focusing on that to try to keep the body healthy because if a body is healthy then you know to get a communicable disease or non-communicable diseases that those you know the probability is going to become very low but 
we our healthcare is more like a disease care so that's where we have to you know put efforts and we have to actually make make healthcare healthcare no <laughs> i agree the um, the the prevention prevention yes. is i think uh, a difficult subject to implement uh, the public does not appreciate prevention um, I, as an example, I started a clinic once called Self Health, S E L F, Self Health, and it was designed to do just that. It was designed to take the average person in and evaluate any kind of problems that they could be having and developing, and then advise them as to lifestyle changes for them to prevent any complications from these um, genetic changes or whatnot. So it was a forerunner of all of our genetic uh, testing and all that. And I got to great public relations. I had front page headlines uh, announcing my clinic and all that. Uh, and uh, so it was a great amount of PR because the public, the, the, the newspapers and everything really thought it was a great idea. Uh, but uh, I, after 10 months of having my clinic operating, you know how many patients came for that stated purpose of a normal person coming in to be checked to see whether or not they were on the right path as far as their lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know how many? Zero. <laughs> not one. Not that one. accountability is not there. You're absolutely right. And the model of insurance also makes them more and more, you know, ignorant about this, that people are not supposed to worry about, you know, whether they should be healthy or not. But as long as they buy insurance, everything would be covered. So they are, you know, becoming very oh, careless true. about their health. If that's you true. make them accountable that you do certain things and you, after doing all those things, if you become sick, then, you know, the insurance should, will, uh, should uh, trigger in because you did everything, you know, right. You took all the steps that you were supposed to take. You were accountable. You tried to stay healthy. You tried to prevent the diseases happening to you. But in spite of all that, the disease onset happens. So then, you know, the insurance should cover that. But right now, insurance industry is also on the, you know, going towards on the verge of collapse if it continues this path, because it's just not sustainable. If you, well, if, if, you if, if we had, if we had the insurance companies on board with this plan, that would save them money like crazy, because they too would be the ones that would be saying to the doctor, yes, we will pay for these therapies according to the computer, you see. And so the doctors then would have more incentive to do what's correct because otherwise the doctors will just continue on doing it. They're a bunch of like, you know, trying to ever work with a bunch of doctors. It's like trying to herd chickens. They do not want to listen to anybody. They all think that they're, they're God on earth and they all should be able to make decisions about life and death for you. And they don't want to be held accountable and they don't want to know much either. They don't want to study. And so, uh, when a lot of them, once they finish medical school, they say, that's enough of that. I've, I've spent my four or five years of medical school and learning. Now I'm going to go out and, and just practice medicine. And practice medicine to them is dispensing drugs and, and that kind of thing without studying much and not keeping up with the literature and, and keeping up with all the things that are happening. As I mentioned, there's so much information we know, need to, to do. So uh, it's it's a real problem for, for all of us uh, to try to get this whole thing uh, uh, working in, and all we can do is start with one step at a time and I think efficiency in the whole system is really important and yet this is something that nobody addresses now going back to the public and education you know I swear to God if if everybody had gone through and spent some time uh, going down to the morgue and looking at bodies coming in that have been involved with motorcycle accidents and uh, drunk drivers being uh, crushed by uh, you know, flying pieces of metal and all that, uh, they would have a lot different perspective on their health. You see, now, for example, back in 1983-84, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw had a book out on how to prevent aging and all this kind of stuff and, and so it gained a lot of traction. He was on the Merv Griffin show and whatnot, sold, I don't know, a million copies of this. People were all into it. And I had, as a, as a young practitioner in alternative medicine, I had a lot of people that came to me for anti-aging, and I still uh, specialize in that to some degree. And uh, so when they would come, uh, they were like 26, 27 years old, men usually, and uh, young men, and they'd be smoking two packs of cigarettes and drinking two or three beers a day and getting drunk as skunks on the weekend and wanted to have 
a, a variety of, of, of supplements given to them so they could keep on doing all the drinking and smoking and, and still live forever. <laughs> yeah. Cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> so in other words, and, and so I would, my, my response to them was, that I don't care how many vitamins I give you or whatever. When you go out and stand in front of a truck on the freeway and the truck runs you over, nothing is going to work. Okay, and that's what you're doing with drinking and smoking. You got a truck, you're you're driving a truck right over your body, and there's nothing that can be done to prevent that kind of damage. Now, unfortunately, that you know that message doesn't get out to the public. You see, so we have to make that real. You know, real reality for the public is something that is hard to to convey. Another good example is a woman with breast cancer. A breast cancer patient comes in and she says, "I've got a lump on my breast. The doctor wants to take out my breast. Can you believe that?" That dirty rotten SOB wants to take, take my whole breast off. That's awful. I can't live like that. I'm, I mean, my sex life is going to go to hell. I got, da, da, da. She's got a lot of reasons to not do it, right? And yet, if she doesn't do it, she winds up dying because she's left the cancer in there and it's continued to fester and fester because she keeps putting it off. Or she says, well, I'll go to this doctor and he'll put me on vitamins and, or this or that. And I get a lot of people, I've had a lot of people over the years that come to me just for that purpose. They have a lump in their breast and they want something else other than chemotherapy or surgery or radiation for treatment, okay? And as a licensed physician, that's not really kosher for me to advise anybody anything, but what I do is I say, okay, okay, I've heard your story. I I can uh, agree. I can, I can, I can uh, understand your concerns about it all. Uh, but I have to tell you, this is the way I believe, and that uh, you have a simple little tiny lump. It's only one centimeter, and I can uh, pretty well tell that if you just have that taken out, even in a local lumpectomy, uh, you should be able to be cured and live your uh, entire life without any more cancer. But if you don't, you just keep fussing uh, around with it and not doing what you're supposed to and, and keep searching for somebody to help you have that cured without standard therapies, uh, you will have that continue to progress and you will then wind up with cancer spread throughout your body and you will die within the next three years. And do you understand it? Oh yeah, I understand. But I still want to do it. Okay. I said now, so here's this, a woman who's not convinced at all that I'm telling her the truth. She in her own mind thinks that I'm holding back some secret remedy, you know, and it's, I have to protect myself because of my license and all that so she's she's still doubtful so i have to write a contract for her i have to say dear mrs smith i have told you today that you have a lump in your breast which is undoubtedly cancer and i have recommended that you have immediate surgery and if you do not do that within the next and if you continue to refuse ther proper therapy you will be dead of cancer spread throughout your body within the next three years i have uh, been informed this and i have accepted this as truth and I pledge that I will uh, not uh, uh, complain about Dr. Steenblock's care or complain to the medical authorities or anybody else because he is doing his job trying to help me save my life. And I say, sign it here. I got to witness it here. I got to notarize it here. And now we're good to go. Now I can treat you. And you know, when, after a contract like that, you know, they say, oh, you're serious. I swear to God, you're serious because two hours of my lecturing to them about a lumpectomy and how safe it is and how effective it is and how dangerous it is not to do it does not register. You have to hit them with a contract. The world here in this country believes that a contract, a legal contract is more important than all the advice I can give in the world because that's a contract that says this is going to happen. I'm going to court and I can say in court, this is what I said and this is what I did. And she went and refused it. She signed it all off and she's dead now. And I am, I can't say anything other than, I did exactly what I said I was going to do, which was tell her what to do, and she refused to do it, and she signed it, said that she wanted to die. So, you know, see, people do not want to believe the doctors when they're telling the truth a lot of times. And we have the same thing with our politics, too. <laughs> so we can go on and on about examples of how much uh, BS there is in this world and, uh, you know, people who are trying to sell you something. You know, and that same person with a breast cancer can go to a chiropractor or a naturopath who can say, oh yeah, high doses of vitamin C, great therapy. But it's not. You know? Well, but it looks like the technology is going to come to rescue. There is a lot of hope in the technology. 
there are complex challenges like what you are talking about and you know that accountability responsibility and all that is not there but internet is going to prove you know a blessing to a lot of these you know problems that we are facing well no question but in, in, that, in that situation here's this breast cancer thing this is a simple thing not a simple not a carbon but if it's metastatic breast cancer disease spread all over the body she's now two and a half years out she's got another six months to live you know at that point now we're talking about really complicated stuff this is not easy the lumpectomy was easy that i can tell you that's the fact you have to judge what's the easiest thing what's the cheapest thing what's the most effective that was easy cheap and effective right now after two and a half years of not doing what she was supposed to now it's all over her body now what do you do now then it comes down to what age is she uh, is she 80 years old or 60 or 40? Now, if she's a 60-year-old, then you might want to start her on tamoxifen or one of those estrogen blockers because oftentimes in that situation, you can stop the cancer and reverse it and, and have it go away for a few years. So that, and, and that's something that she would do, okay? But, but there's lots of choices at that point. So the more complicated the disease, the more choices and the more, more apt you are as a doctor to miss out on effective therapies that would work for that person. And that's where the computer comes in, is to gather all that information, all the latest stuff from all over the world on what's the latest and greatest treatment for this and have it outlined for you as a doctor. It would take me personally to do that on a metastatic case like this, probably three weeks of nothing but full-time study, trying to gather information, organize it, correlate it, and corroborate it. No doctor can do that. No doctor has a time. It's so complex. To, it's a yeah, lot of information right. that you have to grasp at the yeah, it's, right. in such a short amount of time. Humans right. cannot do that. We have to depend yeah. on the technology, technology. And intelligence to be able to tell us, you know, all this uh, quickly, you know, analyze all that information and give us an accurate diagnosis. So that that is proving very helpful. The technology transformation, the digitalization of That's all right. these uh, solutions it, it's right. going to be amazing and there is a also a movement uh, that is going towards developing digital platforms there are some people saying that the doctors of tomorrow not today but doctors of tomorrow are going to be just you know going to provide suggestions to patients that you know these are the different solutions that you have uh, and you can you know choose one of that whichever makes you feel comfortable and you can join the network of people who are f facing similar problems so that way you all can uh, uh, you get information from their experiences and uh, that those customer centric healthcare networks that, that are connected by digital platforms that will uh, allow them to take the decisions based on those kind of you know information that are available so these digital healthcare networks that are you know emerging and there is a lot of promise in that and people are really hopeful for that what are your thoughts on the well i, I agree totally and i think that what you just mentioned would fit quite well into the plan that i was describing that is this internet technology, uh, artificial intelligence, communication, where you have feedback. And that's what you're talking about, feedback. So if we had a thousand people with chronic fatigue and they have gone through this or that, and they put them back into the system, the information about what they did and how they did, that feedback comes back and around. And for the next thousand people, I have more education, more understanding about what has happened with all these other people. And so as time goes by, you could easily have a million people who've had chronic fatigue and have gone through this process of identification of the causes and, and the treatments and all that. And from that, the computer, could, with the doctor's help, help assist the patient much better in terms of identifying exactly the right therapies for them. So this, this whole thing about uh, community feedback is exactly what I'm talking about. It would be fantastic if that, and it's not that hard to do to set this kind of computer uh, artificial intelligence feedback kind of loop up. You know, it just takes forethought. The people that are putting it together have to say, well, what do we want? We want feedback. We want not only latest information, but we also want to get all the information back from the patient so that we can feed it back to the next patient. And so this constant thing of constantly learning is what artificial intelligence is all about. And all I'm saying is let's apply the latest and greatest state-of-the-art high-tech artificial intelligence to this whole system of healthcare to make this whole thing efficient. 
That's all I'm yes, saying. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, there is a there is a lot of promise and hope in that. And people say that this digital health revolution is the single most important revolution in healthcare since the beginning or arrival of modern medicine or pharmaceutical drugs or vaccines. So yeah. there, there is a lot of uh, hope uh, and uh, promise in this. Uh, uh, artificial intelligence based uh, advances that are happening but while the future of healthcare seems to be digital is the healthcare industry concerned by the digital disruption or are they welcoming whatever changes are coming their way you know i don't think they really care uh, as long as they have another drug they can sell and make money uh, i think they're happy you know the price that's another whole issue that that you know, just put this aside for a moment and talk about drugs and, and pharmaceuticals. You know, there's in, in, the, the amount of price disparity between locations when you buy your drugs is astronomical. For example, in this country, we have a drug uh, that I can buy uh, 30 pills for. This is, a, this is a broad spectrum antibiotic. 30, it's called uh, nizanide. And, uh, and you may know it in India because it's still it's sold in India. And so Nizanide here sells for $1,000 for 30 pills. That's a lot, okay? 30 pills, $1,000. In India, you can buy for $30 a thousand pills. Big difference, huh? Now, just yesterday, I'm, I'm working on a new kind of antifungal drug. For, for two weeks supply at Walmart, it's $1,000. At Costco, the same medicine, 30, two, two weeks supply, is $100. Just within our own state, within our own city, within two miles. A $900 difference in a two-week supply. What is the reason of that, uh, that much difference? It, it is just market, the market beware. I mean, it's buyer beware. I swear to God, it's, there's no rhyme or reason for pricing of anything. And so that is a real problem. And, and so... The only thing right now that you as a, as a person in this world can do is to shop and shop and shop. And so you have to get online and there's a thing called alldaychemist.com. Uh, there's uh, uh, northshore.com uh, uh, in, in Canada. Uh, there's all kinds of these. Uh, in, if you put in India uh, drugs, that helps because India is a great place for making drugs. And they're all pretty much all FDA compliant and, and approved over there. So. You're pretty, I haven't seen much come out of India that has been bad and fraudulent, especially when being bought by a Canadian pharmacy or, or Australian pharmacy or whatnot. And so, for example, um, this is a, another example of it is, is, um, is this uh, like Viagra and uh, Cialis. Cialis in this country is selling for $60 a pill. I can buy the same pill, generic, for 47 cents. Uh, of all-day chemists. It's an Indian drug, not an American drug, and they stayed on it not to be used in the United States, <laughs> but they still sell it to me. So, so I, I have to break the law according to the, to the all-day chemist website because it says, do not use in the United States. Why? Because they have some kind of rule about charging $60 a, a pill here. You know? So why, you know, why are American consumers being so, so uh, you know, <laughs> Yes, there are, there are a lot of imbalances. You're absolutely right. And there's the pricing, you know, the drug pricing. Uh, a, the same drug, you know, has a different price in each and every nation. So that is that is a very complex challenge. And I'm not sure how without policies or regulation. Well, well um, I think, again, the computer could help a lot. Because if you yes. had a computer that could go through all of, the, all of the databases, all the drug stores, and collect all those prices and put it together. And when you're doing all this, and here's, here's all the drugs, and here's, the, here's click on this, and it'll tell you what the cheapest price is and the most reliable source of your drug, that would, that would pretty well solve it because those companies that are charging $1,000 versus a dollar are gonna be eliminated because nobody's gonna buy it from them but everybody's going to be buying from the dollar. And so, True, but are yeah. we, I mean, the other question is, I mean, would we be allowed to buy from wherever? So that is the, because well, there are some, you know, regulations that you can purchase drugs. If you're living in this nation, you can get it only from uh, that place and you're not allowed to cross the border to get it. So there are a lot of regulatory challenges that we, you know, people are facing, but I'm sure that in the coming years, it's not going to be overnight, but in the coming years, 
all those you know barriers will dissolve and we will be able to the boundaries will blur and we'll be able to purchase the insurance or pharmaceutical drugs or treatment from wherever we would like to so that hopefully those changes will happen but uh, and the technology like you said you know is going to be a game changer and is going to be uh, very beneficial because it will provide us all the different data from all across nations and we'll be able to quickly evaluate that and uh, take the right decision that you know works for us will benefit us so ai is a game changer and there is a lot of hope on artificial intelligence but uh, how to convince doctors hospitals practices and insurance providers to you know go on with this uh, artificial intelligence uh, well, they don't have to be you don't have to convince them that's my the beauty of what i suggest it's the public the public is going to be accessing this information you know even if even if you don't have this concept of the doctor having a medical assistant that is paid for by the government to help those people that don't know jack about anything don't know how to run a computer but just start with the people that are smart enough to, who have computers and can access and put into the computer all of their symptoms and their history and have the computer keep feedback. That alone would start the ball rolling, okay? That's what you need. You need to be able to take information and drop it in front of the doctor and embarrass the hell out of them. I swear to God, because otherwise they're not going to do it. They're going to they're gonna scowl at you and, and snarl at you and, and make fun of you because you're not a doctor. Even as a doctor, they make fun of me. As a doctor who has got, I know more about medicine than they do, and they're still making fun of me. Now, that's scary. If I know more about, and I say, I go, well, what about such and such? What about such and such? What about that? Here's a paper. Yes. Oh, don't worry about it. Forget it. That's their answer. I say, wait a second. This is the facts. You're telling me to forget the facts? Yeah, because I'm a doctor. You're, you're not, you, know, you know, it's my business. Well, it's my business. It's my body, my problem, and I'm a, I'm a pretty knowledgeable fellow. I got more education than most every doctor. Okay, and, and I study more and I do more and I've got a better clinic and a better office than anybody else. And yet these doctors, they know it all, you know, so ego is something that is something we all have to overcome with these doctors. And the only way to do it is shove it down their throat, give them a piece of paper that says these are the facts and these you cannot. And if you do disregard it, you can be sued as they're afraid of being sued. They will change. Otherwise, they're not going to change. I swear to God, we have to, as a public, get our act together get this done and force the doctors to change, I swear. If you go back, another example, 1952, a book came out on how to reverse heart disease by lowering your cholesterol. Can you believe it? 1952, 1977, Nathan Pritikin came up with a book on how to reverse aging or how to reverse heart disease by a low fat, low cholesterol diet. Same thing that was published in 1952. Nathan Pritikin was roundly criticized for being an absolute quack and it had nothing to do with anything. And cholesterol was nothing to do with heart disease. And so the cardiologist went crazy on him and told everybody that he was a quack. And he died basically a quack. But years later, they finally decided that in 1993 uh, or so, they had a big uh, study on, on uh, it was called the University Health Care Co-op study on coronary artery disease on people, men over the age of 60 who had had a heart attack. And they put them on, uh, there was 8,000 something, 660 people or so, men, on this study. Cost $800 million. That's a lot of money for a study. And double-blind control study. And they did what they did was put half of them on Questran, which is a cholesterol binding agent that was available at the time. And after five years, they found that there was a decrease in incidence of repeat heart attacks in those people who took Questran which indicated that lowering the cholesterol had an effect on reversing heart disease or at least preventing it from getting worse, okay? And you know what they said, the cardiologist said? Who cares? Who cares? That's only a, that's only applies to men over the age of 60 who've had a heart attack. It doesn't apply to anybody else, see? <laughs> now, that was the resistance we had. Everybody was a quack. I was a quack because 1977, I started preaching Nathan Pritikins about low-fat, low-cholesterol diet and all that. Okay, but and I was a quack too because I believed it then and I do now because I had studied it. I'd read all the research, I'd read the Framingham studies, and all most doctors have not. Most doctors have not spent the time and energy necessary to really know what the hell is going on, but they got their opinion and they're smart and they think they know everything because they went to medical school. <laughs> so here it is, 1994 or so, and guess what happened? What was a game changer in the whole history of heart medicine was Mevacor. 
And when Mefepor came out, which is a cholesterol-lowering drug, that was a pill that they could prescribe that changed everything. Now the doctors finally got religion because they had a, a remedy for cholesterol that they could use and that would make them continue to be in the hot spot of the, of the cardiology movement. They were in charge. As long as they were in charge and controlling the patients, they were happy about it and they accepted it. But other than that, if they had to tell you about your diet and your exercise, forget it. Now, another example, same thing. I had a lecture once about in 80, 84, 85, with a local group of doctors from, from LA down to San Diego. They all came to me and I lectured on how to reverse heart disease naturally. A two hour lecture went through all the, all the nitty gritty of how it works and why it works and all that. You know what I got? I had a cardiologist in the audience and, and I said to him, George, what do you think? He says, you know, this is all very interesting, but I cannot afford to, to know any of it. So, so you see, financially, the cardiologists are stuck with, they, they want to make money. They want to make that $300,000, $200,000 a year, and they're not going to get it by talking to you about your health and your diet and your exercise because there's no money in it. People, yeah. in fact, don't want, don't want to pay you for that. I can, I can spend an hour talking to you about your health and what you should do dietary-wise, and people do not want to hear it. They don't want to pay for it one nickel. But if I say I'm going to give you a shot, and it's cost you $500, and it's going to help you, oh, okay. Well, that's 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 the reason it needs to be tied with the insurance. The yeah. you know availability or your uh, eligibility to purchase insurance needs to be tied with you know what different steps you are taking for the health, managing your health, and you know staying healthy. That needs to be there. But uh, you you made a very interesting point. I mean, it is absolutely right that there is going to be resistance as the technology advances. I mean, it, it seems that technology can solve many problems healthcare is facing yeah. today. And well, it will, uh, whatever we will face in the coming tomorrow, also the technology is going to be able to solve it. But as the healthcare crisis worsens, while technology advances, new tools and platforms will emerge that will change the old, our old traditional notion of how healthcare should be delivered. It's from uh, physician centric, it's going to become people centric, you know, and that change is going to happen. It's uh, imminent. So, but there are many challenges we'll have to overcome. One is the resistance by the healthcare industry. Another is the regulatory challenges. And then, you know, uh, other is the people, you know, accepting uh, whatever the decisions the, or the information they are getting from the AI based uh, uh, virtual assistant or, you know, the AI based nurses. So a lot of, uh, or AI doctors, uh, that resistance from people also will be there. So there are many, many obstacles we do foresee. What what do you think that, you know, what other critical challenges we will have to overcome? I, I think that developed nations will face more challenges than the developing because we don't have that many regulatory holders in other countries, developing nations, where we will, the technology will be able to penetrate very rapidly. But in the developed nations, like America in United States, we'll have to overcome many obstacles before we accept this uh, digitalization of the healthcare industry mm -hmm. and uh, AI-based uh, systems to take over or, you know, developing an AI-based healthcare system. The foundation is being laid. I mean, a lot of uh, different uh, changes are happening. Technology is being developed. Infrastructure is being developed. But what, what challenges do you see that, uh, do you foresee that are very critical and we have to overcome that in the coming years for this to, you know, progress? Well, again, it comes down to education um, and, and understanding. And um, it, the public is every day inundated with information about eating foods, uh, drinking you know, liquors, uh, doing unhealthy things. Nothing, basically, almost anything that you see on television uh, is designed to sell you something. And to sell you something, you have to sell something that people want. And people want pleasure. And so pleasure comes with ice cream, it comes with cigarettes, it comes with booze, it comes with fancy cars. And those things are the things that drive people, pleasure. And so the trouble with uh, our healthcare system is that we have not taken that pleasure principle into account. Uh, and so uh, we have to somehow counter that uh, pleasure for the moment uh, with the reality of the future, which is misery. So today you have pleasure, and you'll hear that young people, well, I'm not going to live forever, so I'm going to smoke and drink today. And, and that's true. And then you have the story of the guy who's uh, 75 years old, and uh, like me, and 
as falling apart and said, gee, if I would have known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. Uh, so the, the reality of, of, uh, of life is something that, and, and how precious and how fragile your body is, is, a, uh, is an educational challenge. Uh, and so young people who are strong and healthy and get up every morning, they can go out and drink and smoke and get up in the morning and they still feel okay. They think that this is going to last forever. And unfortunately it doesn't. And so uh, sooner or later, after 10 years of that, they start to uh, get a little bit uh, more sluggish in their metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, and can start developing medical problems. And so as you get older and older, the, the amount of deaths occur in that age group increasingly goes up and the amount of disease goes up, et cetera. So it's a logarithmic curve going up uh, as you get older and older with the number of diseases and problems that a person acquires. And, and by having a good lifestyle when you're younger allows you to have a more flattened curve. So at 80 or 90, you're still uh, vital and, and uh, vigorous. And yet the public is not aware of these facts and, and have not taken them into their own being and uh, don't recognize the, the importance of putting off pleasure for a future benefit of living longer and healthier. And so that, that's a real issue. And I don't see how you can get around that other than education by really some practical stuff. And, and, I, and, I, and I talked about using high schools to do it, but, but now I was I'm thinking, you know, it'd be better to just put it into the computer and have like high school healthcare courses that you have to take to get a better healthcare coverage cost lowering. So if you could go through and take tests on heart disease and how to prevent it and, and how to prevent lung disease, et cetera, et cetera, and have, have you actually see actual pictures of, of autopsies and reality. You know, hardcore reality is what people need. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to like it. They don't like it. They get sick to their stomach. No kidding. But would we rather have people get sick to their stomach once in a while and wind up changing their habits to stop smoking and stop drinking and start doing everything that they can to help their health and keep it intact rather than us as taxpayers continue to pay money for their stupidity and their, uh, their uh, their wanting to avoid a little bit of pain and, and discomfort when it comes to healthcare. Uh, and so we have to get people over to get over that kind of um, uh, being afraid of or, or not liking, uh, you know, who, how many people don't like blood? You know, they pass out. I say, I'm going to give take a stick of blood, out, take some blood out of you. And they go, oh my God, I'm going to pass out. Well, these are the kinds of people that need to have more exposure to these kind of things rather than less. And of course, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to do it. But if you want to have a whole, the whole country change, everybody has to get in on the same bandwagon, which is understanding about your body, understanding what goes wrong with it and how fragile it is and how if you do these things right, you can enjoy life today better because you're healthier and you do more things and you can enjoy life better when you're older because you're going to be able to do things other than sit around with deep vein thrombosis in your legs like I'm right now. But, you know... <laughs> Very but, true, very true. No, that's that's very true. Now, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about the today and the coming tomorrow of healthcare, and especially to the innovators? How should they move forward? How should they? Where, well, especially where should they put more efforts? Well, number one, you should yourself go to the go to the computer and, and put in. There are different places like a website, rightdiagnosis.com, etc. You find those websites that have these kinds of things where you can put in all your symptoms right now and you get a list of diagnoses, okay, for your symptoms. So that's how you as a person individually can do it right now. You have to go to individual sites. You have to take some, you know, have to have some initiative. You got to work, put into Google uh, how to diagnose my medical problems and it'll list all these different websites. You go there, put in your data, gather all the data you can, find out all you can, and then decide what's important or whatnot, and then go see the doctor and shove that down. So that way, at least you're getting started on this whole thing. Yeah, it's you're working right now, but you're starting to see the fact is that it's important. You can do it. You can learn and you can apply it to yourself right now. You don't have to wait for artificial intelligence. But in the meantime, you could write a letter to your congressman. You could write a letter to the newspaper and, and keep promoting this whole idea because if we as a public do not keep telling everybody to do this and, and get involved with this and take care of your own health by doing these things, by looking things up on the computer. Cure, CureHunter.com is another one that's great. Cure, C-U-R-E, Hunter, CureHunter.com. I, I love that site. It gives you, if you put in 
whatever, myeloma, cancer, it will give you a list of all the current drugs that are number one, two, three, four, five, and it gives you the percent effectiveness of all the drugs. That's tremendous. How many people even know of it? Nobody. How many doctors know of it? Nobody. Why? Because they don't advertise because it's, it's just, they're, they're high tech people. They're not promoters. So they're not promoting this website. Like here I am, I'm promoting it today, but I don't, I don't own it or have anything to do with it. I just use it because it's great. Okay. And the public can do it. So you have rightdiagnosis.com and curehunter.com. Those at least get you started. And then you put in Google and do those all those other things for all your different things. You do all that and start bitching at your newspapers. Why don't we have this system set up for everybody? Because I'm a smart person, I got a computer, I got, but other people don't have the brain power I've got. And I'm talking about the public out there that's doing this and listening to us. Those people that are listening to us and actually do what I tell them to do, they're smarter than the average bear. Okay, those people should take responsibility to help others that are not so fortunate, don't have the computers, don't have the brains, don't have the initiative, don't have the drive. I've got all those, you have those, but most people don't. You know, so we are an elite group trying to preach to the public that what we need to do as a public really is to get our act together and get us all organized and working together to provide care for everybody at the least cost and the most effective rate that we can. And, and I think it's eminently doable if we all get together and work together. Yes, absolutely. That is the key. We all have to work together. This is a collaborative, cooperative economy, and we won't, nobody will be able to do anything in silo. We have to work together. So thank you so much, Dr. Steinberg, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on complex challenges facing healthcare. Our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on the healthcare turmoil and what role technology and non-technology solutions would likely play for healthcare transformation in the coming years. And even if a single decision maker across nation can come up with an idea or innovator can come up with an idea to advance the healthcare transformation based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today, this risk kind of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me, I appreciate it. Wonderful. So with the technology advances having a potential to make healthcare more affordable, accessible and effective, as we know it, it will also likely bring complex security challenges, industry acceptance challenges, regulatory obstacles, power conflicts and many other challenges. Risk Group Cybersecurity, Geosecurity and Space Security Risk Research Center are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing NGIOANCGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if you build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.